The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hi, Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras. I'm here with Mukunda Prabhu. Mukunda Prabhu, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's been a long time coming, and I'm happy uh, we finally got it together. Uh, so I can be here. Thank you so much. Yes. So I saw your. Um, lectures online and devotees sent them to me and i was very impressed by the way you present krishna consciousness in a very wonderful scholarly sastric way so i wanted to have you on and and i know i've also listened to a few of your uh discussions of of uh, your preaching in africa with bhaktitirtha swami so you have an amazing story so i'd love to share that with all my uh, listeners here so maybe prabhu let's start from the very beginning uh where did you grow up and and how was that and how did that kind of lead you to uh spirituality i was i was born in ohio this body I was born in ohio and at a very young age i came to new york and um a very unique thing kind of happened in my life i'm gonna grab this i kept it nearby um Hopefully this doesn't disturb our, our imagery, but if you could see the picture here, well, there oh, it is. Oh, I'll make you full screen. Hold on. Let's see this. Uh, yes. Oh, wow. Wonderful. So this was um, my uncle, and he came to live with us. And he was a disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. And that picture that you see was taken in the early 50s. <laughs> and so when he came to live with us, he kind of insisted that myself and my older brother, that we should study yoga and meditation with him and all these things. So, you know, we were young, relatively speaking. And uh, so, but, you know, we got involved and, and we were pretty fascinated with him. And even I remember myself and my, you know, my, my younger friends, because my brother was older than I was, uh, we used to sneak and look when he would do pranayam because he had the ability to bring his heart rate down to almost a, a stop. So we would sneak and look through the crack in the door to watch all these things. Then when he would leave to go to work, we'd go in the room and we would look through his index cards and he'd have Paramatma, uh, Atma, Brahman. He'd have all these things written on these little index cards. We didn't know what it was, but it was far out. So over the course of years in, in doing yoga with him and so forth, so on. And I mean, this is what I've nine or 10 or whatever. Uh, as we grew up, you know, I got other interests, obviously, you know, sports, the martial arts, all kind of other stuff. Uh, but my older brother was insistent that I had to stay the course with him uh, to stay with my uncle doing yoga and meditation, all this stuff. Yeah, so he was sort of an introduction. Then a special thing happened was that he started to study Bhagavad Gita, but he only had sort of Mayavad interpretations. So he found out about the Krishna consciousness movement. And he had heard about Krishna's, what's called Mosala Leela, it's the ending of Krishna's pastimes. So he wanted to know, he said, had some curiosity, well, did Krishna die, did this, what happened? So he had me call the Brooklyn Iskon Temple, this is 1972, <laughs> wow. and, and ask the question, well, what was Krishna's, we didn't know what it was called, so we said Mosala Leela, it's called Mosala Leela, <laughs> we didn't know what it was called. So the devotee on the phone was really kind and he said, well, we really don't talk about that on the phone, but we have several books here 
that describe all of Krishna's pastimes, everything. So there was no Uber at that time, but my uncle called what was called a gypsy cab. <laughs> this <laughs> 1972. And he gave me $50 and cab fare to go to the Henry Street Temple, buy as many books as I could for $50 and bring them back immediately. That was the, the mission. Oh my gosh. So I took a cab, went to the temple. That was my first darshan, 1972, of uh, Shishi Dev uh, in that temple. And of course, you know, when you walk into a temple for the first time, all of the sights, sounds, colors, smells, everything was like super enchanting. The devotee was really engaging. He bought me down way more than $50 worth of books. $50 was a little expansive at that time anyway, but he bought me a whole bunch of books. And so, you know, I kind of had a box, actually. I remember you put them all in a box. And they gave me some prasadam as well. And I took the cab back, <laughs> gave them uncle. And we looked through all the books, but obviously 11th chapter Sri Mad Bhagavatam wasn't even out then. So wow. we didn't find that. But he took a super interest in Srila Prabhupada's translation of Bhagavad Gita, as it is. He, he emphasized, as it is, as it is. Right? So... Uh, from that, we had so many discussions. I became interested and I started going because the devotee told me about the Sunday feast. I started going my own uh, every Sunday. And uh, that was sort of my introduction into Krishna consciousness. And then uh, I think it was 72 or 73. That was the first time I saw Srila Prabhupada. It was at that temple on Henry Street. Oh, wow. And I remember uh, when Srila Prabhupada came out of the car you know, obviously there was a lot of devotees there because the BBT used to be in Brooklyn at that time, the art department. So there was a lot of devotees living there, pretty stalwart devotees living there. And I remember I was sitting on the staircase and as devotees came in, more and more devotees came in. So I started moving up the stairs to accommodate people coming in. Mm -hmm. And I remember ending up on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a gift shop up there. There was the room where Tulsi Devi was kept. And there was one elderly Mataji there, she wore white, and she kind of looked at me and said, oh, you don't want to see Srila Prabhupada? You know, uh, and I, well, I, you know, so as soon as I could, I got back down the stairs and I sat on the staircase and looked through the banister, but you could see the Vyasa sign from there. And that was the first time wow. I saw Srila Prabhupada and everything. And then when did you kind of really get interested to, to join? Did you join a temple or how did that happen? That didn't happen until some years later. I actually graduated from high school, went into the military in 73. Uh, and it was the end of Vietnam War. So it was uh, paring down of troops and all that. So they gave people an early out. So 1975, I took an early out and went to college. I went to college in, in New York, um, Brooklyn. And um, then, you know, I just got this overwhelming inspiration. I wanted to live ashram life. So on a break in between semesters, uh, I had too many things going on in New York. So I decided to go to a new dwarf out in L.A. And I went out to New Dwarker, you know, sort of um, stayed there for like almost six months or a year. And then I got a, a notice that if you don't go back to school because on the VA bill, you know, if you don't, <laughs> if you oh, don't, right. yeah, your stipend is gone, you know. So right. <laughs> I... Um, I had to make a choice. Okay, what am I going to do? So I had already written a letter, in fact, because at those at, during that time, you had to write a letter to Srila Prabhupada for initiation. So I'd written a letter and everything, and I was in the Bhakta program. I think that was the first Bhakta program that was started by Dhanavir Maharaj now, but Dhanavir Prabhu at that time. And very sweet devotees were in that program. I think Ram Das, Abhi Ram Das, Amala Bhakta Prabhu, we were all in that same Bhakta oh, program. Wow. Oh my goodness. And, um, so I wrote a letter 
But then when that, that letter came from the government, I was like, okay. Because I wasn't sure what, what I, my life would be kind of at that point. I better, I better go back to school, <laughs> right? So then the devotee, um, who was the vice president of the temple, not temple president, who was Tulsi Das at the time. But he said, listen, if you leave, you know, we can't, we have to take your letter back or whatever, you know, you can't be initiated. And I kind of understood because living outside, nobody can, can, can follow you, what you're doing, what you're not doing, et cetera. So I understood it. But at the same time, I, I took some consideration what's going to happen down the line. What will be my future? You know, I'm, you know, I'm an adult. I have to make, you know, ends meet everything like that or right. find some way to life. I didn't really have the, the full dedication. I'll live ashram life perpetually. So anyway, I went back to school. It turns out, you know, I was studying music because I didn't really know what I wanted to do coming out of high school. I started to go to pre-med and now nah, oh, psychology where well, you got to be a doctor to be a psychiatrist. So I was like, I don't know what I want to do. So anyway, I studied music because I had an interest. And then um, a lot of people who were going to school with me uh, were also into music. And uh, among them was Vernon Reed from the group Living Color. So we were all in groups together in the Brooklyn area. So it turns out, you know, we all started getting jobs and we started working professionally as musicians. And so, you know, as that grew and I had an actual income uh, from music and, you know, I started doing uh, recordings in the morning for like TV commercials and stuff. Then I would do group rehearsals in the afternoon, play dance classes in the evening. So I had a, I had a living going on. So, uh, but, you know, I was, I was definitely missing something. So long story short, uh, around 1979, I used to go to Govinda's every day. I would I had my schedule mapped. So I would get to Govinda's restaurant <laughs> on 55th Street uh, for dinner every, every day. So once I was in there and um, devotee came and approached me and said, um, uh, Brahmananda Prabhu, no, Brahmananda Maharaj, because he was sannyasi then, and Srila Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj, because Srila Bhakti Maharaj had just taken sannyas at that time, 1979, and they want to speak to you. So I, I only remember Shilabhakti Tirta Maharaj from when I was out in LA, I was working in the BBT warehouse one day and he came in and he was like such a awe and reverence personality. Everybody looked at him, oh, it's Ganesham, it's Ganesham Prabhu. You know? <laughs> wow. I, I was, and you know, I was enthused uh, because not only his kind of celebrity status among devotees, but you know, obviously, you know, a person who had African-American body and so forth and so on. And, you know, it was like a consideration that this person was so dedicated that, you know, people, many stalwart devotees, you know, held him in high esteem. So anyway, I remembered him. And so I was very anxious, you know, to obviously go up. So when I went upstairs, um, he asked me, said that he had started doing some work and he wanted to work in urban communities. And could I arrange some programs for him if I knew anybody? And of course, from the musical, you know, um, you know, experience. I'd known a lot of people in New York and all of that. So I arranged some programs for him at the Tree of Life bookstore up in Harlem and some other venues and stuff like that. And uh, I also gave a donation, you know, financially things were going pretty well. So I gave a donation for Africa and all of that. And I remember Brahmananda didn't speak very much, but he always kept this big smile. Like, I think we got him. I think we got one, you know, kind of <laughs> smile sort of thing, you know. And then I remember going home and thinking that, you know, wow, I I really, you know, feel an inspiration to just join the ashram again. So I remember it was a big decision for me because I really had a solid music career. And in New York, 
you know, music, musicians is like, if you are out, if you get a call and you don't answer a couple of times on to the next person. Right, right. So by that time, I had a, had a pretty established career with various artists and stuff like that. And it's like, they'll call you twice and then, okay, get another percussionist, get another, get another guy. So um, I, you know, I told a friend about it, what I was thinking about doing, he says, listen, man, don't, don't make a rash decision. Um, but, you know, think about it. So when he told me that, I don't know, just spark something, I mean, no, make a decision. So I remember giving him all of my instruments and everything. I called the New York Temple because I decided to go back to LA because I knew if I stayed in New York, you know, with the calls and with people coming and hey man, just come do this one show, do this one gig, one recording, it, it wasn't gonna work. So I gave him all my instruments. I called the New York Temple and the devotees came to my apartment and I gave all my furniture. So I remember Puru Pabu, who's, you know, passed away, but he was a very good friend. And um, another devotee named Pranadas, who I used to do bhajans with in the temple, uh, he came by and I remember them collecting all the furniture. And then I remember sometime later, I was in New Dwork and a Back to Godhead magazine came out. And the cover was Ideal Grahasta Life. And it had Yogeshwar and his family on there. And there was my lamps and my couches and everything. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. So anyways, but anyway, so... Um, you know, from there, I, I joined again. And, uh, but in, you know, by that time, of course, Srila Prabhupada had, had his Samadhi Lila. And I didn't feel the same enthusiasm in Los Angeles uh, as before. Mm -hmm. And so I remember calling Srila Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj and, and mentioning that, you know, I, I was not feeling so inspired here. So he told me, okay, just, you know, get on a bus or train, whatever, and come to DC. I, I've got a project going on. So I did that. I came to DC and I joined the, project that he had, which was, you know, it's all in ISKCON umbrella, but right. he had something called Urban Spiritual Development. And I joined with him there. We had a restaurant in Capitol Hill. And um, yeah, I mean, I stayed with him. We were doing all the regular devotee programs and Harinam, book distribution, all those things. But we also had the restaurant, which was, you know, huge success on Capitol Hill. And uh, it was a small grouping, but, you know, dedicated grouping. So, and, and during that, before that, you, before you joined uh, Bhaktir Swami, uh, you were in Africa. Uh, mm -mm. That's, no, that was after? Yeah. So actually later that same year, 1979, I think it was a little early that I came to D.C. And uh, later on in that year, um, Srila Bhaktir Maharaj, he came down one morning, you know, just long story short, he came down one morning uh, to give Srimad Bhagavatam class because we had Bhagavatam class after morning program as usual. So he started, you know, Jayarata. Oh, by the way, uh, Papa Staya and uh, my name was Akindra at the time. Mm -hmm. And Akindra, um, uh, you're going to go to Mayapur Festival and then I'm going to send you to Africa to open temples. Jayarata. And there was no more, there was no discussion. I, I was like, you know, in, like, what, what? I, I didn't catch it really, what? You know, and then so we had Bhagavatam class, everything. So afterwards, obviously, you know, I approached him and, you know, well, what, what's the, <laughs> what's happening? So he said, well, listen, um, he had had a dream. And in his dream, Srila Prabhupada had, had come to him and told him, um, open the door. They're waiting for me. Right. And then he said, Srila Prabhupada said it three times. And then he got really emphatic, open the door. So this was a dream he had about preaching in West Africa because East Africa, Kenya, and South Africa had already kind of been established, but there was really nothing in West Africa. Brahmananda Maharaj had gone there and he had started some things, 
uh, life membership programs had gone on. There was devotees traveling from the UK and other places and making life members, but there was no really temples established or anything. So <clears throat> long story short, Papa Stai ended up not being able to go. So I had to go uh, alone. And of course I didn't go to Mayapur either. Uh, we just took a one-way ticket to Nigeria <laughs> and I had 10 US dollars, right? So, and a one-way ticket. So my first fear was getting in, you know, but I had a letter and it's a kind of sponsorship or whatever. So somehow or another, long story short, I got in. And um, of course, at that time, Nigeria had an oil boom. So the economy was really good. I took a taxi from the airport uh, to the apartment we were staying in, which was given to us by one uh, Indian manufacturing company. They had flats for their employees and they gave us one. And um, when I pulled up, the taxi driver took the whole $10. So I told him, well, listen, this is, this is US currency, this is $10. And so we got into a little bit of a spat because I was thinking he was trying to cheat me. So anyway, one of the employees from the factory came out because Brahmananda Maharaj was downtown distributing books or whatever. And he told, oh, okay. And he took my luggage out and sent the cab driver on his way. So I said, did you get my change? He said, no, actually the currency in Nigeria was, it took two US dollars to make one Naira. So actually you got, you got off easy because from the airport to here would be about $20, you know? Oh you got, so I was, uh, and then of course, you know, everything was super austere. We didn't have running water really. We had these huge jerry cans. Uh, we would fill up at the factory with water and we would bathe and we would only flush the toilet if it was absolutely necessary kind of thing. It was so, it was, it was austere, but I was very excited to be there because it was pioneering of preaching. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and now in so so you basically and who else did anyone come to help you or was it? Oh yeah, um, in the beginning because there was no facility, uh, I went alone, and we had a two bedroom apartment there. Brahmananda had one of the bedrooms, I was staying in the other ones, and we had a living room which was filled with books because there was a program called Books for Africa. So there, from floor to ceiling in the living room where we had a small temple area, it was filled with books. Then we had a little kitchen area and that, that's pretty much it. So there wasn't really a lot of room to accommodate other people. Um, I was previously married. And uh, of course, my, you know, my previous wife could not come at that time. Um, and uh, I remember we stayed there and I started preaching from there. First, I started going out in the local area and just distributing books as I had done in America a little bit. And then um, I remember uh, starting to go house to house and to distribute books. And then I thought, you know, I used to do sets of books because there was a whole program uh, in the early period where you do sets of Bhagavatams. And we had so many. So I said, I'm going to try to start doing these sets again. So I would knock on doors and I would go through the whole, well, this is a spiritual encyclopedia Britannica. It's, it's, it, it's <laughs> right. every aspect of life, etc. And so, you know, some people would get it, some people wouldn't. And I actually remember, this is amazing thing, I knocked on one door and a young lady opened the door and I said, wow, she looks familiar, right? So I didn't take too much of it, but then, you know, a guy came, which was her husband, he was dressed all in Islamic garb. So it was like, I, same thing, this is a spiritual library and it's full of information all about life and spiritual. I said, come in. So I, I normally I wouldn't go in, I would just make whatever was happening at the door and then move, yeah. move on. So anyways, I went inside, we sat down to talk. And as we were talking, that same lady 
came out again and again, you know, to bring out refreshments or whatever the case was. And I said, Did you, were you ever involved in music? And she said, yes, in America. I said, I was involved in music. Turns out we knew each other from crossing paths in shows. She was one of the singers in an old group called Chic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we remember each other from paths crossing and shows and stuff like that. So that gave me more, more in with the, with the husband who was a Sufi. He wasn't really just Muslim, he was in a Sufi. So he was into mysticism and all these things. So he bought wow. a set of books. We talked for hours and hours. He invited me to come back repeatedly. So that was interesting. And then you know, I was really excited. So I remember starting to spread out and go to other neighborhoods with the whole sets of books things. And um, first of all, I had to learn how to drive uh, a stick shift because I hadn't done that in America. Right. So we had a little Daihatsu van. And I eventually learned how to drive stick shift. Um, one devotee helped me. His Bhakta Vedanta Shantamaraj now. At that time, he was Bhakta Martin. And he was the first, you know, sort of aspiring devotee I met when I got to Nigeria. And we became, we're like brothers to this day, right? So he was doing a lot of these things with me. You know, he would work in the daytime, um, but uh, he would go on a book distribution with me. And we practiced driving back and forth because he lived down the block in one flat. So we practiced driving to his house like a learned stick shift. So, um, but I'm just getting to an exciting adventure with that. I, I drove once to a very uh, expensive area in, in Lagos called Victoria Island. And I remember seeing like all these very expensive cars, you know, driving into this one complex and it was a gated community. So the gate would open and then it would take a few minutes and it would close again. So I just postured myself and when one car went in, when the gate opened, I just piggybacked in. Right. And uh, the guy got out, he was immaculately dressed according to the traditional dress. And they can tell you he's a wealthy person. So I kind of watched and saw where he went. He went into the flat. I waited a little bit, knocked on his door and gave him the spiel about the spiritual encyclopedias, which were sets of Srimad Bhagavatam. So he said, oh, come in. Oh, another interesting caveat here. When you come in, in anywhere in Africa, like India, there's an etiquette and you need to take something. They'll offer you drinks, this, that. So of course, obviously you can't do any of that. So I said, well, I'll just, you know, have some water. He said, no, you must take something. So I'll take some fruit. So he said, oh, we have a special thing here in Nigeria. So he brought me out what's called a cola nut. And it's a really small, like little fruit and you break it off into pieces. It's super bitter. So it's, it's horrible, but it's a traditional sort of offering to guests in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So I took a small piece of it and everything. And I drank the water. He bought a set of books. Then he said, listen, I want you to go up to my um, uh, my colleague from the other constituency. So I said, constituency? Turns out that complex was the Senate and the congressmen. <laughs> that whole complex was the political. Oh my gosh. So I said, oh man. So I took his thing, right? And I remember feeling like really excited, but I thought it was from the book distribution. So I, I took um, another set of, of books up and by that time, I only had like two or three boxes in the car. So then what I did was I said, I'll take two or three examples. Like I took first canto, another canto, whatever I had. And I would tell them, I'll take an order for you. And I'll return, I'll return tomorrow and bring you your order. So I started going house to house to all these different politicians. And they said, well, who else got them? And I'd show them the list. Okay, I'll take one. Because like wow. nobody wanted to be So I was like, and then each time I'd go, I said, well, I'll just take a little bit of that cola nut thing and some water. That way I could avoid 
So I kept doing that, right? And then all of a sudden I was like super energized. I was like running up the stairs, running back to the car. I'm sweating a little bit. I kind of know where this is going. <laughs> so I finally get back to the ashram. I'm super excited. I'm telling Brahmananda, this, that, 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 that. Just calm down. Like, what's going on with you? So I said, no, 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 no. You got to understand. I mean, it was amazing. There were so many books attributed. And, and I'm like speaking really fast. He said, did you, did you drink anything yet? I said, no, no, no. I just took some of the little fruit, the cola nuts off. And he said, cola nuts are like, <laughs> it's like some kind of, uh, it's like, I don't know what we call, maybe beetle or pond in India or something. Right, right. An intoxicant. You know? <laughs> like a stimulant or something. A stimulant, yeah. Right. He says, listen, in the future, let's ask for like an actual, like apples or oranges or bananas or something. <laughs> so I had a headache. I, it was it was amazing. But I was so fired up from the wow. book distribution, you know, I continued to go there and other places. So that was one of the first, you know, kind of amazing preaching pastimes we had. How do you look on that time now as, as years and years later, and there's the Yatra, it's, I'm sure it's huge and it's just growing more and more. How do you look back on that? I think it was an extreme mercy of Mahaprabhu that allowed me to be part of, of pioneering something. Of course, later on, uh, maybe after six months, we we had come to the point where we had to leave that flat because the lease was up or whatever. And I remember we didn't have a place to go. And <clears throat> uh, we had decided we'd just live in the van and distribute books. Um, and then on the last day, as we were packing up, one uh, ex expat family from South India came, a, a, a father and daughter who were both doctors. And they were opening a clinic and they offered us the second half of the clinic because it was just too big for what their purposes was. Oh, wow. So I, I'm getting to that because after that period, it allowed other devotees to come. Wow. So uh, some other devotees came from America. Uh, uh, my former wife, some other devotees, they all came from America. And we you know, were able to start the temple. And then that started devotees like Ishwara Prabhu was among the first devotees to come. Oh, right. Uh, Ajay Krishna. Of course, Bhakta Martin, by that time, was initiated as my mantra da. So... Uh, we had a very good crew, and on my Facebook page, that picture that's there in the background, that's the yeah. first big grouping of devotees, right. and we had that little temple there. Uh, was was oh, a Bhakti Vasudev Swami at that time, or was he later? He came much later. Oh, yeah. okay. okay cool. But now, watching everything, because from, from Nigeria, we opened many temples in Nigeria, then we went to Ghana, which maybe was one of my favorite places, actually, and we started temples in Ghana, and it was really beautiful. I mean, it used to be so wonderful. Once we got our temple uh, building, the first one, which was in a place called Odoko, uh, we used to do Harinam, and all of the marketplaces in that area were shut down and joined the Harinam. So we would end up with 100 people back in front of the temple <laughs> chanting. So that was just phenomenal. Preaching was phenomenal. Book distribution was phenomenal. Book distribution in Nigeria and Ghana was such that you would go out, you'd do a little Harinam, you'd give a little talk about the nature of human existence and what's beyond it and so forth. And then you'd start distributing books. You take some questions and before you know it, you'd go through about three, four, five, six cases of science, self-realization, life comes from life. And what used to happen in Nigeria, it didn't happen as much in Ghana, but in Nigeria, when you got to the last box, if you had like three or four books left, you just leave the box on the ground and, and get back in the truck because fights would break out. Oh my goodness. Because people would think, hey, no, that was in the line. That was in the line. And fights would break out. So you just leave the last couple of books. I, I, I'm interested to know what makes, what made Nigeria and Ghana 
like very ripe for taking up Krishna consciousness, like the same way Russia or, and, and the same way, like, uh, like some places like where it's more opulent, perhaps it's not as ripe for Krishna consciousness. Like it's not the right time or the right situation, but, but, uh, any thoughts on, on, on that? Like, was there any conception of the African people to be like, Oh, this is something from India, or this is something from America. This person is not, you're not, you're not African, African, you're African American. So was there anything there, uh, which made people feel that way? Or was it just that? Oh, no, this is amazing. No, it was, it was amazing. And actually, I had done a lot of study in African culture, mm. uh, prior to going not specifically for that. But as a drummer, I was involved in a lot of the traditional drumming in Africa and so forth. And some of that drumming entails dealing with the religion. So like in America, there's something called Santeria. And Santeria originally comes from the Yoruba and Ifa traditions in Nigeria. So I had a lot of familiarity at that time with the Orisha tradition and so forth and so on. So when I went to Africa, I had some insight. And so I knew that the traditional cultures in Africa had great alignment with Vedic culture. So I remember writing an article for a magazine there comparing the two how the Orishas aligned with the Devatas and all these things and how certain spiritual concepts like reincarnation was similar. So really people did not think it to be the same kind of imposition spiritually or religiously as they did even Christianity because there were so many root similarities in, in the culture and in the spiritual experience. So actually people took to it quite easily. And because of the opulence in Africa at that time, because the, you know there was wealth and oil and other things, you know, it wasn't a situation where people took to it based on facilitating food for life or any of those things. We did all those things, but, uh, you know, you had a, and plus you had a huge academic community. I remember giving lectures at University of Cape Coast and all these different places. So, you know, you had that academic intelligentsia community who also liked the idea this was this deep philosophy and so forth and so on. In fact, when we have a Sunday program, I remember in Nigeria, you distribute the books and I'd give class for the Sunday program. And when you got to questions, people would raise their hand. Yes, um, on chapter three of Life Comes From Life, I think it's paragraph four. And they'd, <laughs> and they'd be like, I haven't, I, haven't, I can't remember paragraph four, like, you know. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, you know, so yeah. it was really, really intense, you know. So yeah, I mean, the preaching there was phenomenal because there was a synthesis between the cultures. It wasn't really that foreign. And, you know, like I said, you had the academic, community and then you had the religious community there was always a slight pushback but curiosity coming from the uh the sort of christian community that had come about through the missionary activities mm. right you'd always you'd get that little bit of a of a pushback you know you'd, you'd give a talk something somebody would inevitably go what about jesus right <laughs> and you could tell it was a, like the sort of revivalist missionary activities they picked up because their accent would change and become really Southern American. What about Jesus? Right? right. <laughs> and so forth. But, you know, a lot of people also, uh, if, if you had some expertise in some elements of the Bible and you could explain things, a lot of those also came to the temple and over the course of time here in the philosophy, they also came. Islam as well. Right. Wonderful. And so you spent eight years in Africa. Pretty much. Yeah, I think 79 to about 87. And what led to your leaving there and coming back to the U.S.? Well, we had opened temples, you know, quite a bit in Nigeria and in Ghana. And then 
I went to Liberia and to Sierra Leone. At the time, Liberia was not really ripe. It was kind of dangerous, everything. Of course, we ended up losing one devotee there at one point. And uh, Sierra Leone was very similar. Um, and then we decided to try Central Africa. So I went to Zambia and Zimbabwe and opened temples in Zambia and Zimbabwe, and uh, along with my, my former wife and everything. And then we you know, went to Kenya and just preached because Kenya already had temples there. So right. uh, then we decided, well, we should try a whole other area. So Chilabakti Tietamara suggested we go to Central America. So we ended up going to Belize. And we started preaching in Belize. It was so-so, it wasn't as fruitful. So when we came back, finally in 1987, and Chilabakti had come back from Africa. He was in Africa and came back. And he said, listen, you know, we've, we've done all of this but we really haven't done what I wanted to do in the urban communities here in America. So long story short, this is the genesis of the whole Institute thing, Institute for Applied Spiritual Technology. Right. And actually we made that name up. I remember we were going to Howard University and we were giving lectures on a pretty regular basis at Howard and had garnered a number of people, you know, it was really good um, group of people actually, you know. And I remember on a taxi ride back from one of those lectures, uh, we were talking about, I said, we should start like a kind of institute thing. So, and I said, well, the Institute for Applied Spiritual Technology. <laughs> and he liked it. So we took that name, it stuck. And uh, we did a bunch of research on how to do preaching in the new age community and all of that. And, you know, long story short, that led to the development of IFAST. Wow, wonderful. What was it? What were some of the principles, if you could, if you remember kind of off the top of your head of, of preaching to new age? at that time? Well, you see it manifest in kind of uh, the Institute now. It, it looked at contemporary social issues. It looked at uh, things of interest to people, whether it was uh, male-female relations, whether it was conflict resolution, whether it was leadership principles, whatever it was, there was an avenue to bridge Christian consciousness through those mediums. So Shri Bhakti Maharaj is very expert at, at looking at those mediums having the devotees who were working under him and with him to find ways to bridge through those mechanisms. And we set up the atmosphere to be such that it was pretty neutral in the beginning that you didn't walk in and you were overwhelmed by, what is this? You know, so it was, right. you know, atmosphere was like many new age places that you went to, it was really well done. And the atmosphere was kind of neutral, so to speak. You know, the deities weren't even prominently manifest at that time, that came later. And we had courses run. We run courses on comparative religion, uh, male-female relations, and conflict. We'd run all these courses, and people signed up for them, and different devotees were teaching different courses and so forth. And then whenever Shilabhakti Maharaj would be in town, uh, he would give the lectures at Howard or other places we had, and he would do TV and radio appearances and stuff. And then devotees, uh, new people rather, coming, aspirants, would be very excited to meet him. So having come through all of those bridge programs, now they had a chance to meet the leader and facilitator of that group. So inevitably when they would meet with him one-on-one -on -one personally, they would become uh, pretty convinced and you know they would have this dedication of heart and uh, they could see him as a spiritual master even before it literally took place. And uh, you know, in that way a solid group came about. Wow. Before we go into um, you meeting uh, Srila Narayan Maharaj, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bhaktitirtha Swami. What was your relationship with him like that, what, through the years? Um, 
you know, even up to his uh, samadhi and everything like that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, about your relationship with him. Oh, it was extremely close because we came at a time when he had taken just taken sannyas in 1979, and it was a very small grouping at that restaurant. Um, I think you could you can get maybe eight or nine people was the full brunt of everything that went on. And then you know when I left to go to Africa and so forth. Um, so it was a really small grouping that was always around him. And then in Africa, because I was such a big part of his preaching portfolio. Obviously, we became extremely, extremely close. Um, he, you know, I studied, I always studied a lot. Uh, and I remember making a vow when we were in Africa because we had all of Srila Prabhupada's books. I was going to read every book, every purport. You know, this was like a vow that I took while I was there. And he encouraged me so much in that. I remember he gave me, he had his own shloka book. And he gave me that shloka book. Uh, as an encouragement, you know, and that all those kind of things just inspired more and more. So our relationship was very close, um, incredibly close. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. He was not giving initiations uh, in, in the beginning, in 1979. Right. So they were still taking people to other places and so forth, so on. So um, we, you know, continued in that kind of mode, you know, such a very close relationship. And of course, through the establishment of the Institute and all these kind of things. And there's so many pastimes, you know. Uh, I've done a little video series on a lot of the pastimes throughout Africa uh, right. because we're supposed to write a book, but I just finding time and all these kind of things. Just oh, my goodness. You sh absolutely should. I mean, yeah, it was incredible pastimes. And, you know, I guess, you know, I'm trying to get with Shanta Maharaj and so forth and other devotees right. who are involved. And, you know, eventually we'll get that done. But anyway, so it got very close. Um, I originally met my Guru Maharaj, Srila Narayan Maharaj, in 1986, actually. I was on Parayatra, <clears throat> and this was the first year that Ram Janmabhumi was open. Because uh, normally, because of the Muslim-Hindu kind of friction, it's closed, but it was open that year. And there was a, oh, we have to take the Parayatra there. So we took the Parayatra, we went to Ram Janmabhumi, everything. And on the way back, we got off the train. I remember it was Ikarasi in Mathura. And, uh, some sannyasis and another devotee, we got off together and they said, let's go to Srila Narayan Maharaj. And I didn't know really who that was. So they said, well, look, just come with us. This is the place where Srila Prabhupada, our Srila Prabhupada took sannyas. So I said, okay, so I wanted to go and see that. And the other big thing was uh, myself and Ayindra Prabhu were really, really close friends from the time he was in America. Really? We, yeah, we did bhajans together a whole lot, you know, because I was really into... Wow. Madunga playing and all these things. Sure. So we did bhajans like consistently. And so when I got to India, uh, we got to actually, we kind of started that 24 hour kirtan in Vrindavan together. He had this idea. And when I got there, he, in fact, we used to ride around on rickshaws. And I'll come back to the point of the other thing. Sure. We used to ride around on rickshaws with these little tape recorders and record melodies from different places to use in the 24 hour kirtan. So <laughs> oh, wow. I remember going to Kesavji Gaudiamata Mathura and Srila Gurudev, it was pretty open uh, format. You know, people just would show up <laughs> and get to see him pretty much, you know, unless yeah. obviously he was doing something. So I remember going and sitting outside. I was sitting in the, like right in the entranceway to his room. And uh, of course I was hearing the bhajans that were going on in the temple downstairs. So I was listening, you know, and I was, wow. And I was thinking in my mind, I wish I had my tape recorder to record these melodies. And Gurudev was giving Harikata, part in Hindi, part 
in English, you know, because English speakers were there. But I remember seeing him at that time and I reminded him when I saw him again years later about that. And he just nodded because I was so spaced out. <laughs> like, you know, I'm sitting in there thinking about Bajan melodies and he was giving really high class Hari guitar. <laughs> Wow. Right. So anyways, this, this is my fault. And that's but where you that's where you first met him. That's when I first saw Shula Guru Dave. Wow. Um, so anyways, my relationship in 1987, we come back and we're in America and we're doing this preaching with I fast everything. And uh, I remember uh, around 1991 or two starting to get tapes and and manuscripts because there was no books, but there was manuscripts like of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu Bindu others. And I was just overwhelmed. So I started to write to Srila Gurudev and he would write me back on those little blue aerograms. There was no email going back and forth. My grandma used to write us on those. The little blue aerograms, yeah. Yeah, aerograms, so yeah. my, you know, of course, at that time, we had initially taken initiation from someone else mm -hmm. and that person had, you know, fallen from the process, so to speak. Right. And there really is no such thing, just as a philosophical point, I don't know if we love it, if we'll get to philosophical discussions. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we have to nothing do that. as a guru in good standing at the time. There's nothing in Sastra written like that. Guru is Sadguru. So if a guru falls, then it's indication he's not Sadguru. And maybe discussing philosophical later, we'll discuss various situations under which somebody may take up the service of doing guru, though they may not have fully realized their bhajan. So right. there is a circumstance like that. Right. But in any case, if there's deviation like that, Sastra says, Hari Bhakti Bilas, Mahabharat, right? That one should take again initiation from Vaishnav Guru, meaning Sadguru. So, and this is after you can go and you can appeal and try to understand what happened. But at a certain point, you should take initiation again from Vaishnav Guru. Right. So that was my consideration. And of course, at that time, uh, Bhakti Titmar was initiating at the time, but he considered somehow or another, for there was like that initial group that was with him, more like they were brothers and sisters of his or something. And he mm -hmm. wasn't really giving initiations so much to them. I think later on that changed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can't, I can't say. But anyways, so I started writing to Guru Dave and, you know, I, once we recorded, my heart was gone. I was, that was it. So, and there was no problems with it. I mean, I was sharing every, all the letters and everything and there was no issues or any problems or anything. In fact, no problems arose to like 93. And that's when the general problems arose within the larger society. Right. And there was discussion. I think the genesis of that was many of the senior persons used to go and see Srila Gurudev. And of course, prior to that, Srila Gurudev's access to every and anyone who used to come to see him was pretty much there. And when the sort of the GBC and some of the more senior devotees started to go, they wanted those sessions to be kind of closed door. So that started a friction in Vrindavan. And then, you know, sometimes they would be there and then they would not be at the Guru Puja and other kinds of things. And so it, it created a kind of friction that the, the, the regular devotees who were living in Braj, who used to go see Srila Gurudev pretty regularly, their access became a little more limited. There was a whole thing going on and the, only the very senior could be in those closed door sessions. and. So anyways, it started to become a friction that I don't want to go through the whole details, but later on morphed and turned into the, the larger friction that then became a determination that nobody should go to see Srila Narayan Maharaj, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I found that so interesting that 
the devotees that were going to him and getting his association and, and obviously getting something wonderful, then it kind of fully went the other way because it was, I, I don't understand how that happened because, I mean, I guess I understand in some ways that, okay, they felt maybe it was a threat in some sort of way or something like that. But um, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, like full, I mean, I think the similar thing happened with Srila Sridhar Maharaj, right? It was, yeah. It's like a, it's like it happened again in the the next. Anyways, it's it's uh, it's unfortunate um, the way that happened. Uh, but so you so but you were in there before the, all that stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was corresponding back from ninety one, ninety two. Wow. Uh, and so, and at that time, there was not a major problem. I was, yeah. you know, there was there was no issues at all, especially with Shilabakti Maharaj. In fact, you know, in the whole preaching in Africa, we never really experienced any of the drama things that went on within the Iskan society, Africa was kind of in another world from that. We never, only if I would come, because at one point I was regional secretary in Africa, and if I would come to the meetings in Mayapur or something, then you'd hear about a lot of these things. Or Shulabha Kirtamaj would mention some things if he came to Africa for, you know, preaching during the times he would come. So, but other than that, we really didn't deal with a lot of stuff like that. You know, it was all about the preaching and so forth. So even when, when all that stuff happened, what was what was your feeling and what was your kind of attitude towards that? Because like you're you know you had already been talking to him and everything was you know so quote all, all good, but then but then it thing you know stuff stuff happened. So what was your conception or what was your kind of thinking at that time when that happened? Well, 1990, I you know got hired on the police department, so I had a full income. I had my own house. I had my, so right. at this point, it's like listen. You know, I'm a grown man. <laughs> I, I joined Krishna consciousness. Yeah. To, to to really understand what was Krishna consciousness. Yeah. So, and there was nothing written in Srila Prabhupada's books about political dynamics or various sectarian dynamics, so forth, so on. So I just, you know, without wanting to be part of any kind of controversy or anything like that, I had many friends. I've been around the movement since 1972. I just focused on spiritual life, trying to grow, trying to understand, trying to learn. Uh, I had just got on the police department, so I, I didn't foresee when I would get leave. But my plan was if I got leave, I would go to India and I would take shelter of Guru Dave uh, there. But, you know, as it turned out, because Guru Dave at that time had no plans to come to the West. Right. But in 1996, that changed. He came to the West. I took shelter that immediately that first year that he came, myself and some other devotees, so forth, so on. Mm -hmm. So... But at the time, after 1993, when it became a little controversial, I remember not being allowed to give class in the very place that I had given classes for years and years and years and years. So, uh, but, you know, Srila Bhakti Maharaj, it was not out of his own, uh, like, anger or something like that. I did not get that. I mean, whenever we talk personally, it was, here's what's going on in the social body at large. Right. And by that time, his profile in the social body also had shifted a little bit because um, there's another story that at one point, because Shilabak Titmaz was always about preaching, about helping people, he wasn't also into politics. So there was, and he would share things with me. So I remember once a letter came about upcoming GBC meetings, and part of the agenda was the expulsion of Shilabur Govinda Maharaj. And Bhakti Titmaz read it. He said, no, I'm not going there. And he, he got a little upset, a little angry. And he tore it up. He threw it away. He said, I'm not going. He said, wow. push come to shove. We'll go on with this institute and urban spiritual development, which was the sister kind of 
thing he had started before and we'll just keep preaching. If we have to succeed from whatever, we'll just, I'm not gonna be part of stuff like that, right? So that was his attitude. So then uh, actually one devotee, I'm not gonna mention names, came to see him and spoke to him and said, no, 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 we're not really, actually this is not gonna happen. That was just somebody brought it up. So it's on the agenda, but it's not gonna happen. We really want you to come because they were super excited about his preaching and the success of his preaching. Yeah. So he agreed that he would go. And that was the year that they made him the vice chairman of the GBC. So his portfolio had changed and now he was integral, I guess, to you know management of the whole society, not just the dynamics of his institute and other kinds of things. Also, by the time he had many more disciples in different places and so forth, so on. So there was probably a little more scrutiny and to have somebody, you know, like I said, we were extremely close and uh, you know, kind of right-hand man sort of thing. So for me to be going to Srila Narayana at that point dedicatedly, perhaps, you know, with the optics of it and other things maybe didn't work. I don't know. But in the long story short, I understood it because I don't think he ever, with malice or anything that I ever heard, um, you know, spoke against me being there. Um, he, you know, um, he, he, he did say he was happy at one point to see because, you know, we'd all gone through ups and downs, you know, like I said, our previous marriage, all these kind of things. So he was happy to see that we were settled because we were so serious in our dealings now with Srila Gurudev and learning and so forth. So he's happy to see that, right? Mm. And of course, my wife now of almost 24 years, wonderful, I think was like a, a godsend because she was not involved in any particular political dynamic. And um, she had been a devotee for quite some time. And when we got together, it was just also a solidification of state and stabilization of my whole life in many other ways, right? I always well, make, yeah, I always make Please, a joke. No. Yeah. And that, that's that uh, uh, I was in law enforcement and she was a dentist by profession. So I remember when we moved here to Alachua, you know, she had retired by now. Uh -huh. So I had to get a, a regular dentist. So I remember looking at the dentist and telling him, you don't look as good and you're way more expensive. <laughs> My treatments were free. So, right. So are you? Anyways. Wonderful. Um, what was it about uh, Srila Narayan March that attracted you initially? I want to kind of unpack that. Yeah. It was really just the depth of the understanding of all the things I'd read in Srila Prabhupada's books. Mm -hmm. Now we're coming to light in their deeper sense. And... Uh, that could have just been a personal epiphany for me in relation to Srila Gurudev and the combination of what he wrote and how he did his Harikata. So when I started to hear tapes and all these explanations, the depth of things about what is the meaning of bhakti, anyabilasita sunyam, all explanations given by Acharyas, it just, it was another wave of spark for me in my devotional life. Because at this stage of the game, in our late 40s, one of the 50s at that time, it, it, was, it was important for me to be clear about what this is. It, it, it's not just a social dynamic of having friends who share the same kind of interest in the culture of Krishna consciousness. We like the music, we like the food, you know, so forth and so on. Right. This is, this is my life, right? And the time of death, it's not that what you, it, see, some people think if you remember Krishna at the time of death, but the actual verse is Sada, what is the verse? What bhav you have at the time of death, 
You understand? It's not just what you remember because for some people, your mind is not working at all. Right. So it is the bhav you have at the time of death. So it means wherever you have advanced to in bhakti, that state will become the genesis of your next iteration in bhakti. Mm. So it was important for me to now take seriously, what is this? What is the science of this? What is, and not just on an academic pursuit, but how to do bhajan. And Srila Gurudev very much spoke how to do bhajan. Our initiation with Gurudev was almost three hours, the, the explanation parts before the yagya. Wow. <laughs> what is, what is Harinam? What is its meaning? What is Diksha mantras? What is the meanings? Then what is the dhyan? What is the meditation? How to do bhajan like this? The whole morning program, what is the bhajan dhyan for that? What is the meditation? It's not to go in in the morning. This is the ritual of samsara dhava on to the next thing. Tulsi puja. Tals. What is the dhyan? Because mm. this is called bhajan life. Right. Wow. So, I've given so, so many lectures on these things so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll we'll share the uh, the links to your to your different uh, Zoom classes and 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 how people can join. Um, I, you know, I remember you were saying earlier about the philosophy of guru, like the fall down. There's nothing it says about that in, in Hari Bhakti Vilas or anything like that, uh, uh, or or Shila Prabhupada's books or whatever. But the, the we you know that now you know after years and years. But but at the time, did you think like okay, um, I had a previous guru and now. I want it. Uh, I want to find someone who is um, much more advanced. Or was I going to take another take initiation from so someone else because they were in ISKCON? Or like, how was your? What was your thinking at that time? When no, even then, I had read Guru Apyavalipthasha Akaryam 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 Agyanata. I had read all Guru Tattva. Mm. Right. So now my understanding of Guru Tattva was much more clear. So it was not a question of what institution I would find. It was a question of who is, you know, Tajmad Guru Papajita Jigyasho Shriyatamam, who has the qualities mentioned in this verse, Tadvidi Pranipatena, etc. Who has qualities mentioned in this verse, who has realization. So that was the criteria. Already I had seen that in my exchanges with Srila Gurudev, hearing his Harikata, seeing his writings, so forth, so on. So my heart was immediately drawn there. It really didn't take an institutional consideration. There were many high class of devotees. I had so much, Srila Gorgovindamara, Srila Radhagovindamaraj. There were so many, too many to mention, yeah. right? Already within the society, right? So there was never a question of looking here or there. Uh, uh, like I said, in our relationship with Srila Bhakti Maharaj, just that he was not, he did not, see giving initiation he saw us i don't know at that time I, like i said i think that changed afterwards yeah but just saw that no need you're like you know you've been with me this time there's no real need and when i first began to associate with Srila gurudev he was encouraging to that so my understanding at the time was before it grew into more of a, a, a international controversy with the societies and all that that yeah he did not have any issue with us pursuing that, it was just more than not just myself, but other devotees as well, pursuing the avenue of shelter with Chilnarayan Mars, because we had no concept at that time that it would mean changing your mode of service or anything, because we would just still be preaching and doing the same things we've been doing. It's just that our guru would be Chilnarayan Mars. Right. That's, right. That was a consideration at the time. Of course, later, you know, 
institution to institution, many dynamics came up and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I've never participated in that, even to this day. I've traveled for Hari Qatar, given lectures in his temples and other places, because I just, I'm not a political person. Right. You know? Right, right. That's, that's really cool. Um, I know you've probably come across uh, through the years where devotees have said, there are differences in the teachings of Srila Prabhupada and Srila Narayan Maharaj. What would be your answer to someone who says there's there's a difference and that difference can be can confuse people or whatever they say about about that? So we'd have to first ascertain what the difference is. So I would ask the person, what is it that you see that's different? When they bring up the topic, then we can say, let's use the metric that's used to examine uh, what this topic is. Let's say it's uh, Guru Tattva. Well, let's examine both Srila Prabhupada's writings, Srila Nanayamaraja's writings, Srila Gurudev's writings, rather. Uh, let's examine even the writings of the previous Acharyas on this. And then that's the that's the template that has been recommended even by Al Srila Prabhupada for how to resolve what is the, the Siddhanta or the conclusions about something. So we can mutually come to that understanding if we examine those things. So let's examine them and see if they're different. So then a lot of times people are going off of information that's not been investigated. Like I remember one time there were a husband and wife and the husband used to come continuously to see me for Harikata and for just asking questions and so forth. So the wife was feeling some disturbance. You know, I don't know. the disciple of Narayan Maharaj and so forth. So then once, you know, he said, I want to bring my wife to, you know, talk to you about it. So certainly no problem. She came and says, you know, well, my, my, my reticence, my, my difficulty is that I spoke to one senior devotee, not mentioning your name again, and they said, Srila uh, Narayan Maharaj emphasizes Raganuga Bhakti. So I said, um, so what is Raganuga Bhakti? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> so I said, how can you make your decision in an informed way that the difference will be emphasis on Raghunuga Bhakti if you don't know what it is and you can't vet to see if there's an actual difference? Right. You know what I mean? Right. How will, you, how will you make that decision that this is somehow harmful, dangerous, or you know, something to be you know, uh, worried about if you, if you don't know what the, the nature of it is? Understand? So then we explained, like, what is Raghunuga Bhakti? And then if you examine closely, you look in Srila Prabhupada's books, it's all Raghunuga Bhakti. The worship of the deities installed by Srila Prabhupada, rather Krishna Balaram, but mostly Radha Krishna deities, they can't be worshipped by Vaidhi Bhakti. Sakale Jagate, More Vaidhi Bhakti, Vaidhi Bhakti, Braj Bhakti, Nai Sakti. So you cannot worship Radha Krishna by Vaidhi Bhakti. So what are we doing? We're following Vidhi, because Vidhi means the following of Sastra. And if you don't follow any Sastra, then you'll simply be the cause of disturbance. So following vidis does not mean following vaidhi bhakti. <laughs> mm-hmm. You understand? There's a difference. Right. You understand? You, you have to follow, even if you're doing Raganuga bhakti, Shravanam Kirtanandani, Vaidhi Bhakti Suranti too. You have to follow rules and regulations. <laughs> I, I guess the what the, you know to use the same word that lady is is the emphasis is seemingly different. Not really. It's it's that will be perception by maturation, right? So if if, <laughs> you, 
depending on your level of maturation, and obviously that's suitable. But at the same time, you cannot put a wholesale ceiling on the evolution of devotees because that becomes dangerous. That's what do you mean? What do you mean by wholesale ceiling? A wholesale ceiling means we don't want anybody inquiring about anything beyond what we may be able to explain. Right, right. You understand? That becomes yes. dangerous because that starts to become like herding. You understand? You, you develop a herd mentality. Yeah. And so you, you develop certain red flag words, Bhav, Gopi, Raganuga. Right? right. And rather than explain, investigate, so that people have an understanding of what these things are in relation to Adhikar for them, you kind of give a blanket, uh, you know, like you do to a child. Don't touch that. It's hot. Right? Yeah. Kind of thing. And that becomes part of a herd mentality that then leads into an idea of, well, they emphasize that. No, it, it's an organic part of the teachings of bhakti. If all through Chaitanya Charitamrita, Nadi Lila chapter 4, the entire thing discusses that Mahaprabhu came. Prem Rasmiyas Karite Ashwadan Rag Mar Bhakti Loke Karite Prachar. You understand? Yes. Yeah. Srila Prabhupada in many cases also spoke about these things, but Srila Prabhupada spoke about them in regards to how they should be unfolded according to the gradual levels of maturation. So now you can't stifle everybody's maturation to accommodate. And at one point that started to happen. There was an idea that if we can't explain it, devotees will go elsewhere to find it. Yes. So that started to lead to a kind of, like I said, a ceiling mentality. Let's, let's cap a ceiling on what can and cannot be discussed. And anything that we're not capable of discussing, right, then we should kind of give warning and danger signs about it uh, and uh, make anybody who is discussing these things like sort of the anti-party and that kind of stuff. So that all of that was very unhealthy. And of course, I think a lot of that is past now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also talk about, you know, uh, when you were talking about the guru, um, I'm going to have a discussion next week with a few younger devotees regarding that, like uh, Rasik Mohan, Narsingha, um, Jay Jagannath, a few others. We're going to do it on the podcast. But I also wanted to talk to you about it. I mean, I have like a few topics that I want you to kind of pick, pick your brain about. But um, yeah. we can start there. Um, the guru being, um, like you were saying, like the, the example that I always hear, not always hear, but I heard it from some devotees is that, okay, there's the medic in the field. And when you come injured to the medic, they can do only so much until they have to be like, okay, now you go to the hospital and go to the doctor. So the, the example that's, that's given in that way is that, okay, there's, um, there's the guru that kind of uh, is able to help you in a certain way. And then if that person is, is not able to help you further, then you go to uh, a further, you know, a further advanced guru. So what is your... Uh, I guess, what's your view on that? Not your view, but like what your, you know, what the teachings are uh, in regards to, does the guru need to be Mahabhagava? Does it guru, is the guru okay to be like a sadhaka? Or like, let's talk a little bit about that. So sometimes in order to explain certain situations that may exist, we develop our own parlance for that. So we start talking about, well, this, the medic guru or the, the student guru and so on and so on. Right. 
Right. So, but there has to be some sangati, it's called, some alignment, though, with the actual sastra. <laughs> it has to be an actual connection. Yes. So, sastra says that there are various persons who can perform the function of becoming guru. That person who is upadakshanti te ganas, ganinas tattva darshana. Tattva darshana means he's seen, he's had darshan of the absolute truth. So, he is uttam bhagavat. But the Uttam Bhagavat, Sava Bhutam Yapa said Bhagavam Bhavam Atmanaha. Because any Maha Bhagavat who's completely absorbed in their inner mood, they don't distinguish who's a devotee, who's, a, who's not devotee, right? They can't. They're absorbed yeah. in their inner bhav. So even that Maha Bhagavat, if they're going to perform the function of Acharya or Guru, they come to the Majjim Bhagavat platform, which is in the verse Isuritara Dineshu. Basic line is prema maitri kipupeksha. They can see four categories of persons and they act accordingly. They are still Bhagavat because Bhagavat means they're realized devotees. You understand? But they come down to that level to preach because neither Bhagavan himself nor the pure devotee on the Uttam Bhagavat platform give bhakti. This is written in Madhuja Kandamini of Vishnu Chakravati Thakur. Because they would be attributed with a fault which is called asamya dosh, means the fault of partiality. So they come down to the Majjim Bhagavad platform where it's in the nature of seeing distinction in order to preach. Those persons are qualified to be guru, sadguru. Right? Another person who can perform the function of guru who may not have realized their bhajan, Rupa Goswami describes in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Sastra Yukti Suni Punya, Dridhashara Uttamarikari Se, Tariye Sangsar. So here he uses the word Uttamarikar, but it's Uttamarikar in eligibility to perform sadhana. Because he's Sastra Yukti Suni Punya. So the word Sastra means scripture, obviously. Yukti means the logic or understanding of Sastra. Suni Punya, he is very accomplished, or she is very accomplished at Sastra and Sastra Yukti. And therefore, Dridha, Shraddha Yandra, their faith in Bhakti is fixed. So they are excellent examples of how to practice Bhakti. Therefore, Taraye Sangsara, they are also capable of helping others traverse the path of, of Bhakti and cross over Sangsara. They may not have realized their own bhajan yet, but they're fixed in the process. They may also perform the function of Acharya. But there's going to be a difference between that person and the person who is a realized devotee, and especially a sane Pati Bhakta. Sane Pati Bhakta means like our Srila Prabhupada, Srila Gurudev, who are just very widely and broadly known in the army of Mahaprabhu. Mm. Because you have many pure devotees like that who they're just doing their bhajan someplace and they're not as prominent. Right. But those who are sane Pati Bhaktas in the army of Mahaprabhu, sane Pati means like a general. They're yeah. traveling everywhere to, and they're manifest as amazing pure devotees. So that's one thing. The thing about those who are in the category I mentioned who have not yet realized their bhajan, one important hallmark quality they must have is they cannot have Guru Abhiman. Bhakti warned. Means may I always consider myself a sisha and never consider myself guru. In fact, may guru abhiman, tiaji means may go very far away from me. 
So if this Guru Abhiman comes in and Guru Abhiman like Pratishta, Raghunath Goswami spoke, Pratishta Asta Drashta. Drashta means very audacious. So Pratishta or pride is very subtle and it's very audacious. It'll appear and don't recognize it and won't recognize itself. So Guru Abhiman is among the groupings of that kind of pride. So if you start to think, oh, I, I'm Guru, I have many disciples, so forth. That pride is so subtle that it could be very dangerous. And if you've not realized your bhajan yet, what to speak, you're not even Sastra Yukti Suni Punya. Hmm. Wow. Uh, it, it, it's difficult also f to off the, you know, to see uh, if someone is, how can you tell if someone is established in their bhajan, if that's one of the qualities, you know, and also the guru, no guru abhiman, but I remember you were saying about the uh, being established in, in bhajan. How do you determine that if it's like, you're not going to go and ask someone like, hey, are you established in your bhajan? No, this is why Hari Bhakti Vilas recommends that one should have association. Of course, it's not practical, but I'm giving where the foundation is. Yeah. You should observe the guru and guru should observe the sishya for one year. This is recommendation Hari Bhakti Vilas. Mm. That was turned into just wait a year for initiation. <laughs> right. But the actual <laughs> should be mutual pariksha. Pariksha means examination. Yeah. For one year. So that one can observe the bhajan habits of guru. One can observe the realizations of guru. So forth. One should understand guru tattva. Right? So that period of time is meant to develop that. And similarly, the guru does examination to disciple. Does he want to be a disciple because he wants the social, uh, he wants the social status of, yeah, I got a guru. Yeah, I got one of those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so forth, so on. So that should be there. Now, Srila Prabhupada in the fifth verse of Upadeshamrita, Nectar of Instruction, he puts an onus on a devotee. Therefore, one should be careful to distinguish between Uttam, Majam, and Kanishta, Vaishnav. So Srila Prabhupada could not place that onus on the aspirant if it was not possible. It comes mm -hmm. by association, by hearing their harikata, and by observing their behavior. And then the antaryami, which is the inner guru, also gives guidance. We also have the practical guidance of Jiva Goswami Pada and Bhakti Sindarbha. One, and Srila Prabhupada quotes this in the Adi Lila, chapter 1, text 35 in the purport. One should not accept the guru on social, customary, hereditary, or ecclesiastical considerations. Right. So if you find that all my friends say, oh yeah, he's really sweet. Yeah, just watch the way he closes his eyes, right? <laughs> he sings really well, right? If, yeah. you, if, you, if that's your, your inspiration for taking guru, red flag. If it's the custom that we take initiation in this group, red flag. Right. If, if, if it says that, you know, um, the ecclesiastical body says, take initiation like this or like that, red flag. Srila Prabhupada says, one should take from genuine spiritual master. So therefore, you should study Guru Tattva, be very prayerful to see Nityananda Prabhu, who's a Kanda Guru Tattva, and do your own bhajan life according to what you understand. So follow everything very nicely, very closely, and then it'll come. It'll be some revelation in your heart. Because if we don't think the process really works, if if nobody's going to get any realization from it. And the other thing is, realization doesn't come just as a matter of how, quote, pure you are. 
because bhakti is not dependent on the absence of vishai mm. vishai means sense gratification that's a, a misconception say that say that part again please bhakti is not bhakti is swatantra swatantrita means it's independent Hmm. So bhakti doesn't say, oh, well, this person still has this issue. So I'm not going to appear there until that issue is purified. That's a huge misconception. Huge. I even have, I had that, you know? Yeah, no. If you, 10th Canto Bhagavatam is clear. Bhakti param pratilapya kamam ridrogam. In this verse, Vikiridam Vajavadubir, in that verse, it's mentioned. Yeah. Bhakti param pratilapya kamam ridrog. So bhakti comes of its own accord. By the sincerity and your saranagati. Mm. Now, of course, saranagati means anukulyasa sankalpa and pratikulyasa vivajam. You should give up things that are not favorable and accept things favorable. But if there is some be shy due to the sung scars of previous impressions from a past life, bhakti doesn't have to wait until they're gone. Do you understand? And as bhakti comes, the taste in bhakti replaces the Sangskars, the, the taste from the previous sangskars, and gradually removes them over the course of your bhajan life. Right. Wow, wonderful. It, it, I, I know that um, talking more about, uh, you know, the Guru Tattva thing, the, because devotees, they, because there were, you know, fall downs in, of, of gurus and, and, and whatnot, because of, uh, you know, Guru Abhiman and things like that, then devotees kind of went the completely other way saying, okay, Srila Prabhupada is the only guru and that we should take shelter of him. Uh, even though he's not here, 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 he's in his books and we can still take initiation from him and he's the only qualified guru because the uh, experiences were there of people um, not take taking on the, sh the role of guru, but then not being able to uh, keep up the standard of, of, of being an actual uh, guru. So what are your thoughts on, on that, that even in ISKCON today, there is a kind of uh, what we call soft Ritvikism in the sense of like, it's okay if your guru falls down, you know, but we, we have Srila Prabhupada still. So, I have an issue with that. I know a lot of of my friends and and younger devotees have an issue with that because well, then what's the difference between that and Ritvikism, actual Ritvikism? Mm -hmm. So one thing is that again, Sastra has to be the foundation. It's it has to be the the guiding light in walking this path. So if someone will show me in Sastra where that concept is validated or vetted, as a concept, then it's worthwhile discussing. Other than that, <laughs> it's like, well, you don't have a basis for it. It's somebody's personal idea, right? So well, they'll say they'll say it was in a letter where Prabhupada said, you know, from here on forward, these will be the only gurus, and they they will give initiation on my behalf, and well, but you'll be my disciple. Well, first of all, there, there's 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 so much debate about the letter. I've seen the letter many times, both the May 28th letter and the July 9th letter and all these things. Right. And so much debate about it, about the terminology, about the emphasis. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada's recommended tried and true method for vetting everything is go back to Sastra. He didn't spend an entire 12 years, essentially, teaching and writing all these things canonized in Sastra to then dismiss them all in one day in a letter, right? right. <laughs> that nobody would call you. You understand? So... Yeah. We have to, we have to, you know, be, you know, common sense, you know, vet all these things. So 
anytime you take initiation in any bona fide parampara, you have the shelter of that whole parampara. So it wouldn't be that we only have the shelter of Srila Prabhupada, we also have the shelter all the way back to the Goswami Varga. Anytime you take initiation in a bona fide sampradaya, bona fide parampara. Right. So the point was whether or not it's still important to then accept diksha, literally from someone. And of course it is mentioned here, Purnar Sabyab Vaishnavad Guru. It's mentioned clearly in Haribhakti Vilas, if one's guru falls, one should, Purnara means again, take initiation from a Vaishnav guru. It could be that at the time they took initiation, they were not familiar with Guru Tattva. It could be at the time that they took initiation um, due to their immaturity and lack of examination of that person, they could not ascertain that person did not have the qualities of guru, neither in, in terms of Sastra Yukti Sunipunya or having been realized uh, Tattva Darshi. It could be any of those circumstances. That is not a fault of the person. And it may not even be a fault of the person who prematurely took the function of performing the, the, the service of being guru because they took it maybe with sincere intention, but then being overcome by Guru Abhiman or something else were unable to maintain. And they were victimized by their own samskars, et cetera, et cetera. Now they may have also committed aparad because in Guru Abhiman, you may have obfuscated access to realized devotees. And if you did that, that aparad will also come back to haunt you. And therefore, there were some fall downs also maybe due to that. But whatever the circumstance is, the Sastra mentions, punar, vidi, according to vidi, punar, once you take again initiation from a Vaishnav guru. And then that, that, that makes the whole female Diksha guru thing kind of puts it into perspective in the sense of it doesn't say anything really about the gender of the person, right? It's, 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 it's about, you know, um, is this person realized? Can they, can, are they, are they, uh, able to explain Shastra? Are they, uh, are there, you know, things like that. And, but the, but the gender thing is kind of a, it's, it's what a social, um, like you said, it shouldn't be according to ecclesiastical conditions or whatever that is. What are your thoughts on that? On 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 there being an issue with the with ladies giving in, initiation? I don't know where the the controversy originates because you have Janavama, Gangamata, Lakshashira. Right. You just go down the list. Uh, the wife of Advaita Charya Sita Takarani. There's just whole lists of Vaishnavi gurus, right? So th where that argument really comes in based on, and I think a lot of it's come in from the conflation of regular dharmic Vedic cultural social considerations, which Jiva Goswami clearly said, don't follow social customary hereditary things, right? When considering Sadguru, especially in the mode of Mahaprabhu's vichar or conceptions, partly from the conflation of that traditional cultural norm sort of thing, and in part, maybe because in some sampradayas, like Sri Sampradaya and other sampradayas, there are no female Diksha Gurus. Right. But, in, especially in the line of Mahaprabhu, that one is not Brahmin, that one is not male, there was no consideration like that. Right? It was about the quality of having understood by realization, or at least by clarity, Sastra Yukti Sunipunya, the Vichar Dada of Mahaprabhu, and be firmly situated in the following of that or having realized it. That's the criteria. So 
any, I've asked many people many times, quote me a verse that mentions gender. There's nothing that says Sri or this or that, something related to Guru. You don't see that. One devotee kept sending me some Dharma Sastra verse about uh, females being able to be Guru. So, and then some people will quote from the, the Charit, the pastimes of Dhruva Maharaj with Suniti and Suruchi. But mm -hmm. his case was with Suniti that she was Vatma Padakshak Guru of Dhruva Maharaj, but clearly she identified herself as a Rani, a queen of Uttampad, etc. She didn't identify uh, as a realized soul. You understand? So she gave Suniti good instructions to Dhruva Maharaj where you could find Guru. You understand? Right. So, yeah, it had nothing to do with her being female that she could be Guru. It was what she, what was her nature of realization. She identified, I'm the wife of Uttampad, etc., etc., the mother of Dhruva Maharaj, etc. On the other hand, if she identified that I am whatever my eternal relationship is with Krishna, and she gave up or she didn't have the idea of those things, fine. On the other side, there's also the, uh, like, okay, we want equal rights for, for both men and women to give initiation. And it, it's that doesn't sit right with me because it's like, that's not the criteria either. It's not that, okay, no. we should go through, you know, have equal rights in, in that kind of way. It's whoever has the criteria, no matter who you are, that, that you become guru. And then that kind of like people rushing to become like, as if there's going to be a rush of women to or females to be to, to who want to become guru like it's such a heavy it's like a really big responsibility i don't think it's like people are going to be coming hordes to um try to become guru i want to become guru is the symptom of guru abhiman right or whatever right. i want to become guru symptom of guru abhiman. that's for one thing secondly i've never seen an equal opportunity employment office for guruship you understand? <laughs> so it's not it's not a social dynamic or social considerations. We need to have so many uh, people of color, so many people of this intersectionality or that intersectionality. You understand? Right. So where does that stop? Right? So it, it begins to become uh, infiltrated by mundane social issues. You understand? Yeah. So in fact, many devotees are being afflicted by that whole idea of a lot of mundane social influences are coming into the poorest nature of the Vaishnava Mandal now because there's not a huge insulation like there was many years ago of people living in temples and from four o'clock in the morning to 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, your day was chock full of a set program and all these kind of things. Now things are much more porous. People living their lives, working, coming in contact with this and that. People were involved in all kinds of media from social media to news. So many kind of socially engineered social dynamics have seeped into the Vaishnav Mandal. And I know you gave a class on that. I didn't listen to it. I'm going to. But if you could kind of give a few of those points, I'd be really uh, grateful if you could. Uh, just briefly, um, you know, there's, there's a warning uh, that's given in the 12th canto of Bhagavatam that in the Kali Yuga, in, um, in the absence of spiritual influence, many traits of Kali Yuga will become visible. If you read the first canto, I mean the 12th canto, first chapter, they're enumerated. And if you look at the social dynamics right now, you see them all clearly manifest. Now, as I said, because many devotees are not living insulated temple life, which is good and bad thing, 
right? Because the, the bad part about that was devotees started to become naive to the fact that there is an outside world, right? And on the other hand, it's, it's not good because now devotees have opened up the portal, so to speak, of all kinds of various things coming into the Vaishnav mandal. And just as you said, how easily concepts arise, not based in Sastra, many concepts start to arise because it just sounds or feels good. You understand? Uh, for instance, yeah, we should just automatically or axiomatically have a number of female, black, Hispanic, uh, gender consideration gurus so that we can balance out the social <laughs> dynamics. You understand? Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Sastra or anything else, but it feels good as a social dynamic. Devotees' participation in social justice issues, right? Social justice is a organic thing to human existence. But when you start to become involved in those things to a point where the foundational element that we're not the body becomes compromised, it starts to become dangerous. Then socially engineered words like bypassing, toxic uh, positivity, all these terms come up. People need to get into, there's a whole, I forgot what it's called. It's a whole kind of way you could look up when certain words enter into a lexicon, enter into our lexicon. Oh, wow. And you'll see a lot of these terms have come very recently. And they're only substantiated by consensus. They don't really have any real meaning. Somebody comes up with the idea of positive, uh, excuse me, toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing, right? Some psychologist came up with that term. I forgot his name. But... That's your personal conception. We don't vet the originators of these, these key words, et cetera, et cetera, and substantiate what realizations they have. So to start allowing them to seep into the Vaishnav mandal as valid concepts is very dangerous. You understand? Yeah. Uh, why, why is it dangerous and what can we do to combat against that? It's dangerous because it seeps into the, the, the consciousness because you start to equate these things with absolute things, right? The relative is one thing, the absolute is another thing. There is some intersection at which they come together within our purview in order to distinguish what is truth from what is not necessarily true or what is relative. So for instance, the whole idea of, I don't wanna pick a particular topic, but any social justice issue, there's a relative consideration to it, right? Yes, relatively speaking, we don't want to see um, any race of people marginalized. That's a, that's a human standard, right? But then to identify, I am that body, and to take such a deep position on something now starts to crack the very foundation of the means of what it is you're doing in bhakti, which is foundation on I'm not the body. Right. You understand? And, yes. and there, isn't, there isn't like a synthesis you can make, well, I am the body, but I'm not the body. That's schizophrenia, right? Spiritual mm. schizophrenia of some sort, right? So no, foundationally, I'm not the body. I understand by karmic uh, drama and by the individual karmic portfolios of people, the particular karmic unfoldment here may appear just, unjust, etc. And we're not robotic. 
I spent 18 years in law enforcement. I didn't watch people. Okay, well, this, this lady's being robbed and it's just her karma. It's her karmic portfolio playing out. No, no, I mean, there's, there's, there is a relative response to this relative thing. But if I start to conflate and say, well, listen, you know, uh, as a black man, such and such and such and such, right? And then I'm going to go chant my Gayatri and say, no, I'm not a You understand? Schizophrenia, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to say, this is relative, this is absolute, and keep the, the, the distinction there. And as Mahaprabhu said the same thing, Antra Nishtakara Baya Lokya Vyavyahar. Very beautiful verse. He says, Antra Nishtakara. In your heart, keep the proper absolute perspective. Baya Lok. But to the external world, Vyavyahar. I would get up in the morning, this is for 17, 18 years, do my Mangalarti, chant my rounds, chant Gayatri mantras, everything, go sit in the roll call. Hey, did you see the game last night? This, that, this, and that. Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> you understand? Wow. This I didn't go in and say, all of you are in Maya. <laughs> right. You understand? So you deal with the material world appropriately, but you cannot allow your, your faith to be cracked and to start to let these things seep into that absolute spiritual space, your sacred space. Hmm. I, I love that example that you gave because that's like what most of us go through as devotees living in the West and we have regular jobs and we deal with regular people and things. How to not let that seep in? What was in your life? What was the biggest thing that didn't allow it to seep in? I know bhajan is, is very important and, and good sadhana and things like that. But for, for us to get there, how, how is that possible? Yeah, no, we can't underestimate. Bhajan life is everything. It is the given vehicle by Guru for finding and keeping that sacred space. What's different is our levels of maturation in doing bhajan. You understand? Mm. So we have to intensify. And intensification doesn't mean numerically all the time. It doesn't mean numerical, even in the sense of more rounds, more hours. It right. means deep depth. So you have to hear Harikata, which is the Swarup of Harinam, means the inner mystery of Harinam. Then you have to look at the, what was given from your morning program, beginning with Sangsara, all the way through Tulsi Parikrama, to chanting your Gayatri mantras. You have to deeply understand all these things and you have to take shelter of that space at the appropriate time, becoming absorbed. Then it protects that it's called the Riddhoya Mandir, the temple heart, your heart temple. You understand? When I go to work, then whether it's music, hey, here's your charts, you know, Akindra, this, oh, Mugunda, this is what we're going to be playing, so forth, so on. Your check will be going to, because it has to be a check. <laughs> check is going to, to, you know, to this or that, whatever. Or in the police department, go to roll call, you know. And then I was, I worked anti-terrorism after 9-11 until I retired. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, like the DC sniper case, I worked that case, everything. Oh my, my wife goodness. called me five minutes to tell me, oh, I saw a white van. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> she's over here uh, not appreciating that. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, my Vyavyaharic life is my Vyavyaharic life, right? Yeah. I can't let that enter into that sacred space of bhajan life. 
That's the space where I'm pursuing my spiritual identity and everything else, right? So we have to deal appropriately with the external world. We have to pay bills if you're living cross life or external life. Pay bills, be responsible, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good father, be a good mother. Do those things, right? And don't violate our principles, right? Follow our principles and so forth and so on. And, and deal with the material world appropriately. Keep the sacred space of your bhajan life. And the methodology is not, there's no reinventing the wheel. It is the very things that we do, right? Getting up, doing Brahmahurta hours, chanting, meditating on what you're chanting, study, swadhyay means study sastra. People do the samsara prayers every day, Guru Ashtakam. What is the meditation of that? What is the real meaning of that? <laughs> all deep. the stages of bhakti are presented in the Guru Ashtakam from Shraddha all the way to Bhav. So many wow. <laughs> it, it seems that um, someone with your background in like military and law enforcement, discipline is a huge thing. And do you feel that that had a part to play in your bhajan life as well, that kind of discipline? And for someone who doesn't have that background, how to be more disciplined? And, you know, we can say you, discipline means you just have to do it even if you don't like it. But that is so easy to say and, and much harder to do. No, bhajan life is a result of the kripa of guru. It has nothing to do externally with your life. If you ask my wife, uh, where's that discipline when I'm throwing my shirt and my kurta over the back of the chair, while all my books, when I study, left on the table? You understand? Right. So, so the, the two things don't necessarily align. The uh -huh. depth of bhajan life is the kripa of guru. You understand? It's not has anything to do with our external thing. If you feel in your heart how much Guru Dave has I told recently on Nityananda Triodasi that the depth of understanding the Leela of Jagai and Madai is very important because Nityananda Prabhu shed blood to show what is the extreme Karun Shakti, means the power of mercy of Guru, because he's a Kandi Guru Tattva. How powerful is that mercy to deliver like Jagai and Madai? So our Gurus have also shed blood in the form of their time, energy, so many things to give us this process of bhakti. Especially when your guru enters samadhi, you should be overcome with remembrance, separation, all these things, which is the fuel for doing deep bhajan. Mm. You're external because people can mechanically be very disciplined. I've been up at three o'clock in the morning every day for 25 years chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. <laughs> so what is Hare Krishna? What are the eight pairs of names? What do they mean? What is your meditation? What is the Swarup of Harinam? What does Bhagavatam mean? <laughs> you understand? The depth, the depth has to be there. Yeah, exactly. That comes from the mercy of Guru. That's why the last verse of Guru Astakam says, without this mercy, prasad of Guru, no one can get the Gati. Gati means the goal. <laughs> mm. I want to ask you about, um, like you were saying, when the Guru enters Samadhi, what was your feeling uh, when Srila Narayan Maharaj went into Samadhi, what was your, and, and what, it, what uh, kind of advice do you have for devotees? Because eventually, you know, as time goes on, all these different gurus that, you know, devotees have, they will enter into Samadhi. So what's your experience in that? Yeah, maybe we shouldn't, I can't talk very no? Okay, okay, yeah, that, that's fine. That's, 
absolutely fine. Um, well, you know, we're, we're, we're up to an hour and a half, Prabhu, and, and I, and I really enjoyed speaking with you very much. And, uh, just your, your really, your story and then your depth also really came out. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Mukunda Prabhu, he is, um, on Facebook. He, he gives regular classes, um, on zoom. I'll put that also in the comments when this airs, mm -hmm. but if you want to see him on Facebook, there's his, um, his Facebook name, Mukunda Das, on Facebook. Uh, you can get in touch with him there. If you follow him there, you'll be able to see all his classes and everything. Prabhu, thank you. Do you have any any anything else that you want to add uh, before we end? Yeah, just, I mean, you know, for me, it's a little emotional talking about Gurudev and Samadhi. Sure. So that is the only reason why not. Uh, I didn't want to go down that, that pike. But one, yeah. I'll give one, one lesson regarding that, that really Samadhi doesn't mean Guru has died. Mm. Really, the word samadhi means guru. When the guru is present, they operate in three different arenas. One is called bahyadasa. It means the external dealings, like their teaching class, teaching this, taking disciples, etc. Yeah. One is called art bahyadasa. It means like a middle position in which the guru may be partially inly, absorbed inwardly and partially externally. And finally, there's a stage called Antradasa in which the guru becomes internally absorbed. We witnessed this in Srila Prabhupada, for instance, in Atlanta. He was giving a Srimad Bhagavatam class and his Udipan, Udipan means like your stimulus, your inspiration for speaking. Srila Prabhupada used to use the bhajan of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Jaya Radha Madhava. That's mm. why we sing it every day. Mm. The bhajan is so incredibly deep, right? Srila Prabhupada was chanting, Jaya Radha Madhava. And then he stopped and it was just silent. So first consideration, is there any medical issue? What's going on? It's probably just a, but he doesn't appear to be under any duress or anything. Maybe a minute goes by. Devotees are starting to think about approaching and so forth. And sure the Prabhupada comes out of it. Mm, chant Hare Krishna. This is having entered through the stimulus of the bhajan, he entered into antradasya. Wow. And becoming absorbed in his inner mood, he was there, probably no idea how much time has passed or anything else. Then coming into Bahir Dasa, uh, he overwhelmed, right? The chant Hare Krishna. <laughs> so this is, I've seen my Guru Dev also many times uh, go through this experience. Understand? So when Guru Dev into Samadhi, that's why we say Nitya Lila Praveshta. Praveshta means they've entered into Antra Dasa. They have not died. So they've entered into their inner reality and now they won't function, they won't interact with us on the other two levels, which is that half in, half out, or that fully external level anymore. Right. You understand? Yes. Now, if you want to associate with your guru, if you want to get inner teachings from your guru, you do it through your bhajan. That's another important thing about bhajan. Now you're chanting, you're preaching, you're coming to the morning program. When you sing Guru Astakam, that's your guru day. Nikunja, you know, Ratike, that's my Gurudev. He's Nikunja, you know, Siddha Sevak. You understand? So through this bhajan, you're getting meditation. So maybe something will come in emotional rise in your heart. We're so scared of all these things because we don't really know the bhakti science maybe sometimes very deeply. So I don't want to cry or anything. People may think I'm trying to be a or something. <laughs> you understand? Right, right. But this is, the, we cry at our, the dog passed away. People are crying. <laughs> right. Your Guru Parapadma, you think about what he's done for you. You can never repay that. And you'll think about him. 
which is why I didn't initially speak. Uh, you think about his samadhi, Lila, and you won't cry. I didn't want to cry like a baby on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to. Go, oh no, no, no. Um, it's good. Yeah. I could get. I got. I could get myself together. Here. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you so much, Prabhu. I really appreciate it. Uh, if I could be of any service, please do let me know. Um, stay on. I'm just going to turn off the recording. Thank you again for all my listeners, uh, and thank you again, Mukunda Prabhu. Hey, ready, ready. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.